the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, going to talk about Bernie Madoff, Justin Bieber, and a top five list. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey everybody, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Thursday afternoon. Hope that you're having a great day. It is almost the weekend. Looking it's forward almost to it. the weekend. Ooh. I can't wait. Although uh, I don't. Uh, yeah, your church is doing things a little differently now with recording and stuff. But when you were guys were meeting every Sunday when uh-huh. things were more normal, did weekends like stress you out or was it? Yes, like, it's weekends- the weekend. No, no, no. Weekends totally stressed me out. They were not weekends. I knew like sort of we had Friday night and then ultimately Saturday, one of us was preaching. So we were gone, like buried in the basement or at the church office for most of the day. We tried not to do it all day. We tried to spend the morning with our kids, do something, you know, fun with the family. And then we'd just be gone. Yeah. And then, you know, you're getting up early Sunday. I, I It's sort of my pet peeve when pastors complain about being pastors. That's exactly what I'm doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> I asked you. I set you up. You know, for me, it's like. Yeah. What about you? I, I've been doing this long enough that I feel like I've gotten to the point where I don't prep that much on Saturday. So I do feel like I get a weekend like Friday night, all day Saturday. But it, it starts to creep into your mindset, like, you know, dinner time on Saturday, like Saturday evening. It's so true. Like, it is. And you know, you're going to have to get up early Sunday. And inevitably, you don't sleep well, right? Because you're worried about no. your sermon or will I miss my alarm? And so, no, weekends are not. That's actually why I've enjoyed like this year off, essentially. It hasn't been a year off. That sounds terrible. But nope, you said it. <laughs> break, it's out there. The break from the weekends has honestly been really phenomenal. And Kevin and I are thinking like, okay, what rhythms do we need to keep with us as we reopen? You know, it sounds like the rhythm is don't reopen. <laughs> <laughs> We're just done. It's over. We're closing down. <laughs> we are now fully video. We are fully that. So oh, that is funny. Yeah, weekends. Weekends are something. I'll never forget talking to so my childhood pastor, his son was my best friend all through. It still is all growing up. Oh, nice. Fun. And so I remember going and visiting my buddy out in New Jersey a couple of years ago and talking to his dad, who had long since retired from being, you know, a week in and week out pastor. And he said to me, I asked him, I said, what's your favorite thing about retirement? And he, without blinking, he goes, Saturday night. <laughs> oh, wow. He goes, I never knew. He goes, I never knew how different it was mm. until I, I didn't have that weekly Sunday morning pressure. Wow. Isn't that true? And he said he missed preaching. Like, it wasn't like I don't want to preach. It's just the schedule of like, right. okay, Saturday night is here. Okay. I would also suggest not doing this. Carrie and I were out with some people one time on a Saturday night. And, uh, you know, it was getting to that time where I wanted to go home because church was the next day or whatever. And Right, right. And so they were good friends of ours. So I looked at them and I said, hey, we got to go. I've got to get online and see what Rick Warren said last week. <laughs> <laughs> and they they looked at me like I was 100% serious. Wait, stop. Really? They're like, uh-oh, this is a scandal. He's taking all of his sermons from Rick Warren. <laughs> I said to them, I said, guys, do you really think if I was, I would say that to you right now? 
You're like, okay, good. <laughs> That's awesome. It was funny. It was funny. Well, anyway, uh, the weekend's coming. Those of you with regular jobs, you get to have a real weekend, right? Enjoy not, your not weekend. Job, so savor uh, it. You don't know how good you have it. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know how good you have it. And uh, yeah, so looking forward to being together today. Got lots of good things ahead of us. I wanted to start by talking about a story that came out yesterday morning. Uh, and that was the death of infamous Ponzi schemer, mm-hmm. Bernie Madoff. And I don't know how much of the Bernie Madoff story you remember. Uh, I I remember way too much of the story because, as I've shared many times on the show, I'm a diehard New York Mets fan. Uh, and they lost a ton of money to Bernie Madoff. <gasps> I didn't know that, Brian. Wow, really? Almost overnight, the New York Mets went from a big market spending team to a small market. And they those people have since wow. so- sold the team to a really rich guy. So we're very happy about that. But yeah, Okay, we're all celebrating. <laughs> don't ever ask Mets fans about Bernie Madoff because he was Did a big not. Mets fan. He has all these pictures of him in a Mets jacket and he'd be oh, walking no. on the field. Yeah. Oh, no. But he was sentenced to a hundred and. 50 years mm-hmm. in prison because of his uh he was the mastermind behind a 20 billion dollar ponzi scheme the largest financial fraud in the history of the united states of unbelievable. america unbelievable unbelievable and, and so i remember this story i'm not in the trading business world right. obviously so i don't fully understand how ponzi schemes work like right. when i read about them i'm like how do people think they're going to get away with a ponzi scheme right uh, but here's the biggest thing that I want to kind of jump off of this story talking about is the lore of greed and money. <laughs> so, you know, why did Bernie Madoff do this? It, I'm reading this interestingly. He uh, he stole money. He The people who invested with him, Steven Spielberg, Kevin Bacon, New York Mets, all these people. Uh, but the lore of greed, right? We read yeah. a lot in the Bible about the love of money and yep. the danger of greed. And you read this kind of story and you're like, I would never do that. There's no <laughs> way I would ever steal in that level. Right. But, but there are levels to these things, right? And so- Certainly when, that's true. Yeah. When you read a story like this and taking it to the level of greed, just speak to us a little bit about the danger of greed and the and the reason the Bible talks so much about money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we've, we've talked a little bit about greed and money this week. So there's certainly a theme that's seems to be showing up, isn't there? It might be my soul. <laughs> God is like, I'm convicting you. No, yeah. I, uh, you know, I think the hard part is that the, the, yeah, our, if our hearts are tied to money, then they can't be tied to anything else. Or if they're tied to the love of money, they can't be mm-hmm. tied to anything else, right? Mm-hmm. Like we will actually like, you know, almost bend towards money to the point that we're worshiping it or the things that we want, we're worshiping in them. And then we're totally, our posture is not aligned towards God because it's aligned towards all of what we want. And I, I, you know, I know greed is not always financial. Greed shows up in other ways, uh, jealousy, uh, Mm -hmm, achievements, mm -hmm. accolades, et cetera. But the Bible's real clear that there's something unique about the lore of money that, that, um, temptation of money. And there does seem to be something like opposed, like the love of money and the love of God do not go hand in hand. Jesus himself says you can't serve two masters. And he's talking about money and he's talking about the lordship of, you know, father God. And so uh, it seems real clear biblically that God has a lot to say about this. And we have to get, I guess, just honest before God, right? Like, are we, am I a greedy person or not? And probably we all are to some 
degree or another. Yeah. And so I think the antidote biblically uh, tends to be contentment, this word contentment, Mm. right? We read that book of Hebrews, many other places, literally like told to be content, which is one of those things that's easier said than done. So how do you think, uh, since I, you know, I don't really have an answer for this, so I'm going to go to you. How does one grow? Thanks, Brian. Yeah. How do you... (laughs) How do you not fall into the trap of the love of money, but tend your okay. life towards contentment? And if you don't do that well, how would you uh, advise people to do yeah. that, even if it's a struggle for you? Yeah. Okay. I, I'll tell you when I do it well. I don't always do it well. Certainly yep. not. Um, I, it's easy, especially as a pastor's family, you can kind of look around at people who are maybe making more money or they're in a different industry and you can kind of go, oh, wouldn't it be nice? You know, the, you kind of have that grass is greener temptation. That's right. But um, I... When I'm doing well at this, I will practice what uh, my friend Ann Voskamp talks about, which is thankfulness, gratitude, Mm. just literally even looking around and going, Lord, thank you for what's in front of me. Thank you for this hot cup of coffee. Thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for the desk that I'm sitting at. Thank you. And just to um, cultivate a heart of gratitude, that leads to contentment, right? Because you can't force yourself into contentment, but you can actually practice gratitude, which will open your heart up to contentment and trust that God is providing for you. I mean, you know, he provides for the lilies of the field. He provides for the sparrow. Of course, he's going to provide for you. Um, And then I also think another antidote would be generosity, right? Like give money away and then you won't be so trapped and imprisoned by it. Yeah, I think I think generosity in the Bible is uh, probably the key to contentment that as we realize, oh, there's a joy in giving things away. There's a a freedom in in having an open handedness and a contentment that comes with that. I do think that's the key. Again, all of us can read the Bernie Madoff story and be like, "What a scumbag! I would right. never do that." Be careful, <laughs> just be careful. Like uh, the greed of our hearts can really take us into some strange places and some destructive places. Well, we're off and running today here on the Common Good. Glad to have you joining us. Uh, you are listening to the Common Good AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on this Thursday afternoon. Aubrey, you, you let me know off air uh, the anniversary of uh, of the sinking of the Titanic. So happy anniversary? What, what oh, do we say I know. Though? That feels wrong. What do we, what do we say? <laughs> I, I, there's probably in another language, there's probably some great term for anniversaries of grief right we we have, we have somebody uh, at the station Keith Conrad who is he knows more about the Titanic than anybody I know and he's fascinating to talk to but my my extensive knowledge of the Titanic is the movie which I'm not sure is very historically based so yeah I, I I'm gonna be honest with you Leo is is my yeah that's my extensive knowledge of the Titanic as well. But Keith did tell us the other day that he likes the movie. So I feel like that's something. That's something, right? If you ever want to go down a crazy rabbit trail sometime, Google, uh, could he, uh, what's his name in it? Jack? Could Jack uh, have fit on the door that Rose was yes, floating on? Yes, that's a big conversation in the world. Could Jack is, have fit on the door? There are people who have made diagrams, yes. who have like reenacted it. And I think most people believe he could have, which makes her a diabolical person. Yes, except ultimately James Cameron said, 
I needed the character to die, everyone. Like, that's how it happened. Then, <laughs> you know? then like, at some make, point, the story has to be told. So, then move don't on. Make the, then don't make the door so big. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That was that was his prop person's fault. They should have, like, cut that door in half. Yeah, lots of interesting stuff, though. So, go Google the Titanic. It, uh, it sunk today, uh, 1912, I believe. Here's another one. Google this, and then we'll leave the Titanic be. But... Uh, the side, you know, we're always led to believe the Titanic was just this enormous boat, which for that yeah. time it was. If you've ever seen it compared to uh, cruise liners of today, it is fascinating. The Titanic was like a quarter of <gasps> the size. Are you serious? Yes, or a half. Okay, the I did size. not know that. It's that is a little shocking. Unbelievable. Like the cruise liners. Oh, which I've never been on a cruise, but uh-uh, me neither. The cruise liners of today dwarf the Titanic. It's wow. So anyway, things okay, you well, didn't know. Well, that's what we're here to do: educate you on boats. On boats. <laughs> <laughs> All right, hard right turn here. We talked earlier in the week about a guy by the name of Paul Maxwell. Paul Maxwell, former writer at Desiring God, also a former professor at Moody Bible Institute, also did some research assistance up at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. So uh, an academic, an author, a writer. Uh, Paul Maxwell came out this week on Instagram renouncing his Christian faith. And you and I talked about this earlier in the week. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was kind of the next in, in what's kind of been a line lately of whether it be academics or authors or uh, kind of high profile people saying, I'm no longer a Christian. And yeah, you and I talked publicly about, apostatizing, right. Yeah, the public nature of it is kind of weird to us. Uh, since we talked about that, Paul Maxwell uh, kind of put out an update, if you will, an explanation uh, on his Instagram page. You and I listened to it. We said, man, we got to talk about that. There's a lot here. So uh, it's about a minute long. Let's listen to it and then we'll react. I think I think it's important to say that I'm just not, I'm just not a Christian anymore. And it feels really good. And I'm really happy. I'm really happy. I'm in a really good spot. Probably the best, best part of my life. I'm so full of joy for the first time. I love my life for the first time. And I love myself for the first time. And I hope I can share that. I hope I can share that with you. All right, Aubrey, Paul Maxwell there, kind of mm. opening up about his yeah. thoughts. Uh, he talks about feeling really joyful now. Doesn't sound really joyful to me. Sounds like a lot of stuff going on with him. What did you hear as you listened to him? Well, it was quite sobering to listen to, wasn't it? It mm-hmm. felt like what you would expect someone to say when they become a Christian. I yeah. found joy. I found peace. But instead, he was saying the opposite. By the way, listeners, if you're wondering, he was standing in front of a waterfall. So that's what some of that background water noise mm. was just talking about the piece that he's now found that he's left the faith. I am, it makes me devastatingly sad. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can't, obviously it's hard not to read into when you hear emotion like that, but certainly he has written a lot about trauma. He's written a lot about abuse in the church. And you just have to wonder what his story is, what got him to this place. I think the sobering question for me, just as a member of the large C church is, did we, I mean, and I don't know him personally, but like in general, did we quote unquote, do something wrong 
did we not love him the way we should have? Did we, what led him to get there? And, um, man, I, I don't know. I, I'm heartbroken. I feel like I heard a lot of hurt instead of a lot of peace. That's right. But obviously it's not really, you know, my place to say that. What do you think, Brian? I felt the same way. And it was really, so I think you used the right word. It was sobering to mm-hmm. listen to. Mm-hmm. This is a man who has been uh, not just steeped in evangelicalism, but really conservative evangelicalism, right? Desiring God, yes. Moody Bible Institute. Yes. Uh, there, it felt like, uh, I would love to know more about his background. There feels like there was something in his upbringing uh, when coming and being introduced to the faith that was just really off. Like like when yeah. I hear that, I'm like, wait a minute. When I read the Bible, yeah, I read about, the, about being the entrance into the faith being the entrance into joy. I That's preach right. that. I believe that. Yes. He's talking about the removal of the faith being the entrance into joy for himself. Yeah. And that's what makes yeah. me go, what is the Christianity he was given? I agree that, with that. Right. That has been kind of manifested in his life. And the sobering thing becomes, and am I giving that to people? Is my yeah. church, is the big yeah. C church, is these some of these more conservative uh, you know, kind of neo-Calvinist kind of, you know, desire mm-hmm. God and other things. Is that what's coming out of this? What, what, what went wrong? What uh, went wrong? That's, that's what I'm wondering too, because you do, you know, you, you can understand to some degree people who leave a certain brand of Christianity, mm-hmm. right? Because they, they didn't like the trappings or they didn't like some of the stances. I, you know, to some degree, I'm like, okay, I, I can get with that, but to completely live completely live, leave the faith altogether. Like, I mean, essentially now he's, I, I, he's not saying he's an atheist. He doesn't say he doesn't believe in God, but he's no longer a follow of Jesus. Um, wow. That's, yeah. that's us pretty startling. Yeah. And I, and I do think it causes, you know, one of the things we talk about on the show a lot is rather than throw stones at people is to mm-hmm. kind of allow it to cause us to look in the mirror, right? There we, you go. We that's even good. did that with Bernie Madoff last segment. And so uh, I do want to look at him. I will tell you, as I've read about Paul Maxwell, he writes a lot about trauma. He writes a lot about, like, there's something, there's some, there's something more to the story that I don't want to guess about. Yeah. Uh, but there's something in that upbringing that I think it will connect some of these dots. But I do think it calls into question for all of us, like, am I preaching a gospel that helps people see the joyfulness of it? Like the the gospel of joy and grace and, or am I heaping on something somewhere along the line, he got heaped on burden. And he said, in order to be joyful, I've got to get rid of this. Right. In Uh, order to have peace, I have to get, I I agree with you. Somehow there, there was like almost a wrong gospel or a wrong teaching that got internalized there. That's right. And I think as we close this out, I think we all need to ask ourselves, what's the gospel I believe? Like Hmm. when you, if you listen to that and you're like, I want what that guy's talking about, there's, there's something fundamentally wrong about the gospel that you have been presented. And and we, you got to find somebody to help you unpack that a little bit. We don't want to see more of this, of people going, I'm out. I got to get out of this in order to have freedom in life. Uh, so anyway, we thought that was helpful, although sobering to play, uh, because it is, it does cause us to wrestle. So 
Uh, coming up next, we're going to do one of the fun things we've started doing here in the last uh, eight days since we started the show, and that's a top five list. Woohoo! Uh, Aubrey and our producer Debbie came up with this top five, chose this top five list, so I'm ready to go. It's got to be better than last or earlier in the week when Aubrey chose Blossom as her top Brian, number one. You keep one picking TV on show. me. I feel like you're judging me a lot for this, and so this, we might have that. to we might have to like go to the mat about Blossom. We're going to talk about that next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, I'm Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. Well, since Aubrey and I started last Wednesday, man, it's been a while, hasn't it, Aubrey? We're like, oh, oh man, it feels like it's been a year already, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's a positive or a negative. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, my life was so much better a week ago. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's different now. <laughs> uh, but we tried to introduce just some fun segments, such as Am I a Jerk or Am I Justified? I think Love we're that one. tomorrow, maybe to end the week. Okay. Uh, but the other one we've started is just some top five lists. Just we'll get to know us a little bit. So, with that in mind, let's do today's top five list. Top five, top five, top five, top five, top five things with Brian and Aubrey. All right, here it is today, Aubrey. And this was uh, this comes from our producer, Debbie, and, and you chose it. The top five snacks to get at a concession stand. The I like this one. So uh, we're not talking like movies. We're talking, you wrote right. a note here. What do I get at a baseball game? What do you get at Disney World? Which yes. I told you, the answer to the Disney World question <laughs> is nothing because every concession stand, I'll never forget buying my family of five a hot dog lunch at Disney World. And how much did you spend? $70. Wait, what? Are you <laughs> it kidding? Was hot dogs, fries, and a drink for all five of us. And it was $70. That was be some good, some life-changing hot dogs right there. They were not. And I remember, I remember my kids being like, what's going on? And me being, can you get food anywhere else? They're like, no, that's why they can charge you that. So They can. It's true. Thanks for stopping by. So top five snacks to get at a concession stand. I am ready for this. I'm going to let you go first, though. We're going to go from, from number five to number one. Okay, so I I feel like you kind of just like uh, cut me down before I could rise up, but I was going to say hot dog. Hot dog, hot dog, hot diggity dog. You got to get a hot dog at a concession stand, just not at Disney World, I suppose. Just not at Disney World. That's going to show up on my list much higher than what you just did. <laughs> okay, a hot dog. What do you get on your hot dog, by the way? Um, so it depends on where I am, right? If I This isn't a concession stand, but at Portillo's, I like all of it. I don't like hot peppers, but like, give me the relish, give me the tomatoes. I grew up in Oklahoma, so coming to Chicago, like I learned a whole new way to eat a hot dog. That was kind of exciting. But if I'm, I'm at a concession stand, I tend to go just a little ketchup, honestly. Yeah. Uh, if I'm at Portillo's, I go just ketchup, and they look at me like badly, and my whoever I'm with yells at me, and I'm like, "What do you care what I get in my hot dog?" <laughs> Seriously, this is my business. <laughs> Leave me alone. Nobody, I mean, nobody puts ketchup on a hot dog. All right, number five for me. This may be controversial because uh, this is usually for five-year-old kids. I'm going <laughs> cotton candy. Oh, I forgot about cotton candy. Yeah, yeah. that's a good one. <gasps> cotton candy! 
That's sticky. a real good one. It's gross, usually only for five-year-olds, but I enjoy a good cotton candy. So I'll yeah. try to get my kids to get cotton candy and then I'll, yeah. I'll eat a lot of it. Okay, number four. Okay, this one is a little, I'm going to call it off-brand because it, it's a Disney World thing, but it's not necessarily a typical concession stand thing. Okay. Disney World, there is a, the you know, Werther's that makes like the car- the hard caramel candies? I can still remember the very first sweets given to me by my grandfather. They were Werther's original. Yes. There's like a, at Epcot, there's like a Werther's stand or a Werther's little store, I guess you could go into. They're making all the caramel fresh. And they have just generally like caramel with chocolate or caramel on pretzels or caramel on, I don't know, brownies. And so I, it's not totally concession sand specific, but that's what I'm going with. A fresh Werther's treat. I was going to say, that sounds spectacular and really specific. It's sort of like a highbrow. That's a highbrow concession stand. That's like, what drink do you get? Oh, well, when I go to Universal, I get butterbeer. <laughs> I do like that butterbeer at Universal. Yes. That is good. Yes. All right. Number four, I'm going peanuts, but a bag of peanuts with the shells where you got to like okay, get, okay. get the shells, break them off. I, okay. I know for people out there who are allergic, I apologize, but I yeah. like a good bag of peanuts. Yeah. My youngest son is deathly allergic to peanuts. So I right? actually really like them, but we haven't had them, nor will we probably ever have them for the rest of our lives. <laughs> They're not that good. <laughs> yeah, it's not worth it. Life. My son dying is not worth the peanuts, but those That's are true. good. All right. Number three. Okay. I'm going to go with like a hot pretzel, hot pretzel with a little cheese dip. Oh, see, you lost me at the cheese dip, but pretzel's going to show up on my list again. Okay, okay. All right, me, number three, I'm going Cracker Jacks. Buy me some peanuts and Cracker (gasps) Jacks. Love Cracker Jacks. Man, you got a good, I feel like I'm forgetting some of the things that are out there. I'm going to dominate the food centric top five list. Yeah, you definitely are. You definitely are. But a Cracker Jack, they're they're wonderful to eat and you get the, you get the prize in the middle of it, which you're just like, this is great. Yep. Cracker Jacks are amazing. All right. Okay, I, I'm going. So again, I'm thinking Disney, but this could be all kinds of concession stands. I'm thinking the Mickey Mouse chocolate ice cream. So it's like mm-hmm. you know, on the little stick, and it's Mickey Mouse's face, and he's covered in chocolate. But whatever version of that is at whatever ballpark you're at, just the ice cream cone. You got me on that one. I did not put ice cream on here, but I do love going to like a White Sox game, and my son and I like spl- getting like you know a mini baseball helmet with ice cream sundae. Yeah, yeah, that's so that- good. That probably should. And then you get to take the little helmet home. Yeah, which is always a little gross, but yeah. (laughs) You got a sticky helmet in your car. (laughs) Exactly. Go wash that out, kid. All right. The next two are ones that you've already mentioned. Number two for me is easily the hot pretzel. I actually got one at a concession stand at my son's baseball game this past weekend. Oh, nice. I do not get it with the cheese. I'll get a little bit, you know, salt on it. And yeah. uh, I love a good hot pretzel. It's so like comforting. It's just like a good comforting yes. snack. It's so That's good. Right. That's right. All right. Number two for, oh no, you're number one. What I'm at number, number one. one. Are you ready? Um, mine's a big old bucket of popcorn. Just give me some of that popcorn. The popcorn can't be beat. That is not a surprise. That is a good one. You have uh, stumbled into one of the greater debates in the Fromm house. My <gasps> wife loves popcorn. Really? I don't, I don't like popcorn. You don't like popcorn? I don't. I don't. I Okay, I'll put it this way. If like 
she has a bucket of popcorn and yeah. there's no, nothing else around, I will eat a lot okay. of it. I will eat it. But I will – movies or baseball game, I will never choose popcorn. You you would choose something else. You're going in a different direction. Always. Always. Wow. Yep. Okay. Number, All right. Number one for me is the old staple. You, It was number five on your list. I will always get a hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> I, there is something about a ballpark hot dog. Yeah. And I think classic. it's better even when you get it from the guy walking the aisle, right? Like he A hundred percent. It's better. I don't know why. It may be just the experience of it, because obviously it's like older. It's not as fresh. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, my son and I, by the way, on our trip to Kentucky the other day, that's our top five list, by the way. We'd love to know what you think and what would be number one on yours. Uh, we did have this debate. Would you ever buy a hot dog from one of those spinning warming things at a gas station? At a gas station. Okay, this is actually a really funny story. My mom's got a little, my mom's got a little uh, tough girl in her. Okay, Oklahoma, Um, sure. Yeah, Oklahoma, you know, she actually grew up in Texas. She's not highbrow. That's what I'm trying to say. My mom is not an elitist. My mom in Tulsa, Oklahoma has this gas station where she swears their hot dogs are the best hot dogs in the world. <laughs> and the whole, every time we were driving from Chicago to Oklahoma City, my mom is like, hey, could you stop at that gas station in Tulsa and bring home some hot dogs? <laughs> mom, no, I'm That's not stopping awesome. at a gas station in Tulsa to get hot dogs. But I, she will, she has met friends at the gas station in Tulsa for the hot dogs. Your mom sounds like a fun person. Yeah, she's very fun. With your mom, that is she's awesome. That is good. All right, last question. I I saw you tweeted last night that you want to go to the movies with your husband (gasps) now that the movie theater is open. Yes. What everybody has their go to number one. I get this at the movies. What is yours? Um, I always get licorice. That's my that's my big uh, my big movie theater snack. I I just like for some reason this is going to sound silly. I don't feel guilty when I eat licorice. Like it feels like it's a fruit. It's a healthy snack. And uh, I, yeah, I just love eating some licorice during the movies. But Kevin is impossible to go to the movies with and share a snack with because he eats the whole thing. So I'm yes. like, get your own snack, husband, or we're done. <laughs> <laughs> we've been married long enough. When we're dating, we'll share. But now that we're married. Yeah, now that we're married, uh, uh, hands off. Hands As off. I mentioned, my wife, Carrie, will get popcorn every time we're at the movies. For me, uh, 100% of the time, I will get milk duds. It will oh, be milk duds. Milk duds. Yeah, those are good. I, but now that I say that, to go back to something we talked about earlier in this week and my nature of being pretty cheap, we tend to be the people who buy it at Walgreens and stuff it in our pockets. That's a conversation <laughs> we have to have later because I have follow-up questions about this. Oh, it's and I inherited that from my wife, by the way, so she can come <laughs> on and discuss that. Okay, but okay. We'll have a whole it, thing about it. It is a good saver. That's our top five list. We'll put it up at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Common Good Talk. Would love to know. Uh, your favorite concession stand snack. Where do you agree with us? Where uh, don't you? Coming up next, going to talk about Justin Bieber. I have a feeling that Aubrey is a believer. She is a uh, Justin Bieber fan. Uh, but he actually had some really interesting things to say about marriage uh, that I want to talk about a little bit next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Uh, Justin Bieber, he had some really interesting things to say about marriage. And so uh, you probably didn't think that we were going to go from Justin Bieber and get his thoughts on marriage. (laughs) 
<laughs> but wait a minute. I think we discovered, and you and I talking about this, that I co-host this show with a full-fledged believer. I am Justin a believer. I have uh, seen Justin this. Bieber in concert, not once, but twice. <laughs> uh, this might take a while. I want to unpack this for a yeah. second. because I actually said to my kids the other day when he came on the radio, I surprised them. I said, I kind of like Justin Bieber. They were like, you should have seen their look. <laughs> They're like, uh, what, dad? Exactly. So you've gone to two concerts. A, yeah. I want to know. Uh, first of all, what is a Justin Bieber concert like? Was okay. it just enjoyable? This two, who do you go into a Justin Bieber yes. concert yes, with? Yes, that and is a fair question. Parenthetically, is Kevin Sampson at this concert no. with you? So first, no. what's the concert like? And yes. then okay. who do you go to this Concert with? is amazing. I mean, okay, whether or not you're a fan or you like him or you roll your eyes or whatever – the dude is talented. And yep. so there's a he's a great singer. There's fun dancing. He's very engaged. And these are, I don't go to concerts like this a lot. I actually prefer like sort of a singer-songwriter in a, you know, small pub or something. But these concerts are fun because there's like light shows and outfit changes and the background changes and like he's up in the air floating around. You know what I mean? It's a whole it's a whole thing. But yes, I will okay. tell you, this will make you feel better. I went with my 13-year-old goddaughter. She's no longer 13. We went years ago. But when she nice. was 13, we went. So I, Kevin did not go. Kevin would not have gone. But I went with my goddaughter, her mom, and me. And it was so much fun. So much fun. I think I'd go. Well, yeah, Just you have to go for the experience. For the experience. I have, a family, member, I have a family member, who uh, a guy who went with a bunch of girls from the office or something to an Adele concert. And I was like, uh, I respect that. I would do that. I, I would, would do that. definitely go to an Adele concert. No question. All right. We have a future top five list as in uh, top concerts <gasps> you've been to. But Okay. Okay. Justin I got Bieber, some good ones. Yeah. Justin Bieber is going to be on your list. I think definitely. I enjoy the Biebs. Now, he's a very complex individual. If you've been following his life, uh, he uh, uh, a lot of drug use, a, a lot of uh, trappings of fame mm -hmm. very early on, super early on. But also in the last couple of years, he has become an outspoken follower of Jesus, a lot right. of stuff around Hillsong right. uh, and other things, uh, doing songs with um, Chance the Rapper yep. that, uh, that really uh, point people to Jesus. A lot of just not just, yeah, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus. A lot of kind of being out there. Yeah, he put out an album on Easter that was like a whole, like, uh, you know, you almost want to call it a Christian album. Just really hopeful and and pointing people to God, like you said. Chances of Justin Bieber being played on Caleb. What do you go? What would you, a percentage? Am I allowed to say that? A percentage. Oh, I mean, I feel like that's half and half. Like, he could, it wouldn't be one of his songs, right? Like, don't you think he would have to be like doing, it'd be like Bieber doing a worship song with Carrie Joe or something. Yeah. Wow, you just set it up right there. That is That'd be amazing, actually. Let's do that. Come on, you Caleb. That is a Dove Award winner right there. I'd right go to that there. concert. I would go I'd to that concert. <laughs> <laughs> Justin Bieber and the Newsboys. I'm in. <laughs> All right, but Justin Bieber also in 2018 surprised a lot of people 
by getting married really yeah, young. secretly, right. Secretly to Haley Baldwin of the Baldwin family. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever saw the fascinating thing where there's a picture of them as kids meeting each other. Oh, cute. Uh, no, I didn't see that. Yeah, but he married Haley Baldwin and people are like, what are you doing? This has no chance to make it all of this. But uh, they have uh, they got married in September of 2018. Yeah. And here's what I want to do. I want to read some of his quotes. He opened up, I believe it was at GQ the other day, about uh, the struggles of being famous young, mm-hmm. uh, but also about the struggles of marriage. And I read these and I were like, people in premarital counseling, you and I both do premarital yes. counseling as yes. pastors. This is what people need to read. They need to understand these things. Because I think a lot of times we go into marriage going, Happily ever after. I <laughs> right. I've made it. Finally. It's going to be beautiful rainbows and unicorns from now on. And I think especially Christians and especially young Christians. Yeah. We yeah. get into that. Like, uh, I'll tell the story in a second, but let me read to you some of the things Justin Bieber said. I just think this is really telling. He said, the first year of marriage was really tough because there was a lot going back to the trauma of uh, stuff from being young. Yeah. There was a lack of trust. There were all these things that you don't want to admit to the person that you're with because it's scary. You don't want to scare them off by saying I'm scared. Mm. He continued on to say that he spent his first year as a husband quote on eggshells because he was afraid he would threaten the best thing that he had in life. Later on, he said this, it's beautiful that we have that to look forward to. He talks about kind of their future. Before, I didn't have that to look forward to in my life. My home life was unstable, like my home life was not existing. I didn't have a significant other. I didn't have someone to love. I didn't have someone to pour into, but now I have that. So he talks about how hard marriage was early, but how beautiful it is to look forward right now. Man, I thought... I, I'm not joking when I say the next time I do premarital with someone, I'm going to have them read these quotes. Yeah, these, because, this is a great article. Because don't you think the premarital you've done, or maybe your own marriage, right? We both mm-hmm. got married pretty young, yep. uh, right out of college. Like They don't tell you that early marriage is really hard because it's kind of two broken people now coming together. Uh, and, and I remember hearing somebody say the first year of marriage, I've never laughed that much or cried that much. And I don't <sighs> think... People hear that enough. Don't you agree with me? Oh, 100%. I mean, Kevin and I talk about all the time, the first year of our marriage was the most difficult. And we both say if we weren't married, we definitely would have broken up. Like we were like, you know, who did I marry? And part of that, we married young, we married fast, right? So we we Mm. were so in love. We really didn't do a lot of thinking beyond that. But um, I do think young people getting married need to realize that marriage will trigger any unhealed trauma. Mm -hmm. And that can be a beautiful part of marriage. I think God designed it that way, right? That if you're with a safe spouse, if you're with a loving spouse, you can actually end up, the Lord will use you to really heal one another. But that could certainly go the other direction, can't it? When stuff is triggered and you react and you think you're reacting to your spouse, but you're actually reacting to like, you know, your mom from when you were 10 years old. Yes. And um, those are things that you, and different seasons of marriage bring up different traumas. Things get triggered all the time. And uh, I know Elizabeth Elliott says that this, this may not be an exact quote, but she says something like marriage is essentially two people forgiving each other for the rest of their lives. And I feel like that (laughs) is marriage. What about, what do you think, Brian? It's so true because I'll never forget 
not only having done premarital with people, but I think Carrie and I probably said it. We also got married pretty young. We were 22. And uh, I remember I, I'll always ask people in premarital, uh, tell me about your last fight. Just mm. tell me about how did it go? And oftentimes, especially young people who have been in the church for a long time, they'll go, they'll giggle, be like, we've never fought. And I'm like, okay. Uh-oh, trouble. Like, but that was also <laughs> Carrie and I, like, oh, we've never fought. And then yeah. literally the first week of marriage, you're having this knockdown drag yep, out fight. And yep. you're like, oh, no, are we going to get divorced? No, that's marriage. That's like marriage. marriage is messy. Marriage is hard. And so when I read this, I was like, man, we're going to go, we're going to get this from the Beebs here. He's See, he go to his concert, buy his music, get his marital advice. <laughs> That's right. I just, I want to encourage people out there, uh, especially young in marriage going, I don't know if we can make it. Like you can. Like, yeah, you, you can. can. But you and do have to fight for it. I mean, you got to lean in work. and you got to keep going. Yeah, it's going to be work. And so I thought that was important for us to tell. Well, uh, first hour in the books. Uh, start next hour. We're going to read this article. Or we're going to talk about this article from Christianity Today. Hype meets holy in modern Bible design. What in the world is that about? We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about a really expensive new Bible design. And then we're joined by Dr. Michael Lee, Assistant Professor of Ministry and Leadership at Wheaton College. You are listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. Uh, I think my favorite part of the show is just the interviews we've gotten to do over the years here. Yeah. But I don't think I do. People know that one of the first long interviews that Ian Simpkins and I ever did was with Aubrey Sampson in studio. I don't know. Do you think people remember this? Obviously, they remember because it was with Aubrey Sampson. No one has I mean, forgotten that one. You know what? I actually, this is funny. I just, um, just in my memories, Google Photos yesterday, uh, popped up a picture of me in the studio with you and Ian. I actually sent it on to Jim Minardi, our social media guy, that's because so I thought, funny. this is so cool. That's really funny. Yeah, that's yep. when your new book had come out. Yeah, my new book on Lament, we The Louder Song, had come out. And we talked for a while. We talked for maybe Two an hour in the studio. Least, maybe three segments. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you have a new book coming out as well. What's it called again? It's called Known, K-N-O-W-N, How Believing Who God Says you are changes everything. It comes out in September and I'm very excited about it. It has a forward by Christine Kane. It has endorsements by uh, Mark Batterson and Ann Voskamp and Derwin Gray and just some great people are behind it. And I feel really thankful. So will we do, will I interview you about the book? That's what we have to figure That's out. That's a great question. We, like we'll have you, to figure that out. If you weren't my co-host, we would set up a time for you to come on yep. and, uh, and uh, we would do that, but no, maybe we'll have to do it that way. Maybe we'll we get Ian to come in <laughs> and the two of you interview me about the, the book. It would, it would really blow our minds is if you and I together interview you. <laughs> huh? That's like uh, uh, Inception. Yes. <laughs> we'll do I, was, it. I could see you being like, I was thinking, Aubrey, what, why, why this book? Why now? <laughs> <laughs> Aubrey, tell me your impetus behind writing this book. Well, Aubrey. Uh, and uh, that, this is weird. We'll move on here. So right. at Christianity Today, 
Here's the title, Hype Meets Holy in Modern Bible Design. The latest, the latest quote, premium text has a bright red cover, street art inspired calligraphy, and here it is, a $300 price tag. Woo! The article starts this way, Christian Day. At first, social media users weren't sure if it was an elaborate April Fool's joke. It was, yeah. after all, April 1st. When the billboard appeared above New York City's Canal Street advertising a Bible with a $300 price tag. All right, I'm going to pause there. We'll get into it a little bit more. Thoughts about this, generally speaking, Ah. a Bible with a $300 price tag. So I actually have mixed feelings about it, okay? Mm -hmm. Because I am very pro-creative. I'm very pro-artist. I can admire that a you know, group of artists want to elevate the aesthetic of God's word and, you know, make it something really special. I can, I really can see the the beauty of that. I also recognize not everyone has to spend $300 on this product, right? Yeah. You have a choice to get the Bible in for $20 if you want to. Um, that said, something in me just goes, wait, what? Are we like going back in the olden days when only the elite folks could have access to the word of God? Are we like taking what is meant to be for everyone and making it only for a select percentage of people? So I have very mixed feelings about it. What do you think? It is interesting. I I don't understand. And there might be people listening to the show right now who fall into the category of what I'm about to say. I don't know that there's anything wrong with what I'm about to describe, but I don't understand people who collect Bibles, like uh, mm. like really nice Bibles, these premium Bibles. Uh, this article goes on to say the pro- uh, so-called premium Bibles aren't new. And while they may not carry the same steep price tag, a number of new and traditional Bible publishers are stressing the beauty of an old fashioned book and the experience of slowing down to read at a time when life is lived online. There's a long tradition of Bibles being published and said even hundreds of years ago that we're trying to use the finest materials to honor the legacy of the text. So I do get that. There's yeah. something that feels weird to me, though, about marketing a $300 Bible. You made a good point. People can buy – you could go out and get a $20 Bible. It almost, though, the fact that Bibles are collector items does speak – there are places in the world where all they, they're doing all they can. They're practically dying or in some places actually yes. dying to get yes. their hands on a Bible. Yes. That's so what I was does, thinking. Yeah. yeah it does speak a little bit to me about the comfortability in our context of the Bible. Like, yeah. oh, you know, you, we could do, you know, we could have a Bible this way. We could have a Bible this way. You could have it this way, you know, and. And that in my house, you there isn't barely many rooms where you're not going to be able to grab a Bible right, off of the right, shelf or right. this or that. And so it does speak to you. When I read this, I do worry like, okay, have we lost the point a little bit again? Like, is, is this a sign that we've lost the the uh, the depth of what the Bible is? Right. Like, have we lost it, the mission a little bit? I mean, it feels a little bit tone deaf, a little bit off brand for the Bible. I might even be okay if it, let's say they want to write, they want to do this beautiful Bible. Everyone you buy, they donate a Bible to a third world country or, or a, a place where, you know, you actually can only have the word underground secretly. That might feel a little bit, I might be more accepting of it. Yeah, um, it also, it, it, I mean, you know, there, it makes me think of like, I do love old, beautiful cathedrals where people spend money to build a space 
that honors God. And so I sort of feel like it has that same heart. So again, I'm like kind of going back and forth in my mind, like, but at the end of the day, $300, I'm with you. Marketing that as the Bible and the Bible is a collector's item, it feels like it's shaky ground. That's a good way to put it. It's a wrestling that we've done before about, I know this is different, but uh, pastors who, uh, you know, spend a lot of money on their shoes right, or on the outfits right. to preach it. Is there anything wrong with that? No. No. Right. Does it make me kind of feel something in my soul, like kind of dirty that I can't really put a finger yeah, on? Yeah, it kind of does. It kind of does. And if I were in New York City at Canal Street and looked up and saw them advertising a $300 Bible, I think I would just cringe. And you might be out there being like, you guys are totally wrong. I, yeah. not, I'm not explaining great why I feel that way. I just know that I feel that yeah, way. Yeah, maybe let us know what, if we're if we're getting it wrong. Or, I mean, I guess I could see, okay, here's a positive. There's a big ad in New York City, maybe someone who's never even thought about buying a Bible would be like, oh, well, that's a that's like a commodity. That thing is special. I need to own that. Maybe for the first time in their lives, they open God's word and the Holy Spirit uses it. I'm going to pray. That's that's my new mission. I'm going to pray that God you. uses that Bible in that way or Look else I'm going to get real positive. cynical about it. I do want to use this, though, to highlight, like we talked about earlier, the, the number of places around the world. There you go. Uh, going uh, where, where the Bible is not able to, there, there is no Bible and people are trying to get it in. And I, I just want to keep that um, front of mind for us a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, hopefully, you know, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, if you I have Bibles, donate them or give to an organization that's getting Bibles in places that don't have access or can't have access. And then maybe we should do some more research, Brian. Maybe this organization is donating sure. money. Maybe they're doing something really positive with this. And if so, then carry on. It's the beauty of this show. It's the beauty of hosting a two-hour daily show. I love when we have segments where you and I just go, I just am not sure what I think. <laughs> right, right. That's human. We don't actually know. You tell us, listeners, what you We're think gonna about it. We're going to put this up at our Facebook page. Uh, we also have Twitter and Instagram pages at Common Good Talk. Tell us. You might be like, no, you guys are wrong completely. Wonderful. We love that kind of dialogue. Yes. I just know something feels in my soul. Something feels strange about this. Yeah, anyway. I'm with you. We're going to be joined next by Dr. Michael Lee. He is the Assistant Professor of Ministry and Leadership at our our alma mater, Wheaton College. That's he's actually a professor of mine recently in grad school. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. He has written a ton of stuff, but he's written a lot specifically about this uh, phenomenon of deconversion. And we want to talk to him about that and some other things next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm, and we are real excited to be joined by Dr. Michael Hockman Lee. Uh, Michael is Assistant Professor of Ministry and Leadership uh, at, our, at our alma mater, Wheaton College. <laughs> that's Michael, right. That's right. There you go. There you go. Michael, thanks for joining us. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me, Brian. Aubrey, oh, it's absolutely Absolutely. Our pleasure. Hey, before we jump into where we're going to dive in here, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience so they get to know you a little bit? Sure. So, well, let's see. Uh, I've been the husband of Roberta for let's see, 2018, almost 19 years. Nice. <laughs> and I'm the father of three boys. Uh, one is 14, another's 10, and another's eight, which wow. I seem to recall... It's probably close to your kids' ages, right? 
Aubrey. I, I was just thinking that we're, yeah. we've got three boys too, and we right. are 14, 11, and nine. So we're just Very right close. there. Yep. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm finishing up my third year at Wheaton College, and I teach across a couple of graduate programs within the School of Mission Ministry Leadership. I've done some writing and research in the area of race and ethnicity, uh, religious mobility, which is uh, the topic that we're going to talk about today, mm-hmm. and uh, the theology of religions, uh, which relates to how we theologically um, appraise and account for the reality of non-Christian religions. Hmm. And then prior to coming to Wheaton, I uh, served in pastoral ministry for about, for about a decade. Wow. So that's my oh, background that's before going into academia. That's great. Michael, a lot of your research is on this topic of deconversion. That's something that Brian and I have actually talked about on the show quite a bit. But for listeners who may not know, what is deconversion? Yeah, so <laughs> we use a, a cluster of terms mm-hmm. uh, within this topic. It could be uh, apostasy is probably one that um, most are mm-hmm. familiar with. Uh, there's also disaffiliation. Uh, but Within the social scientists, uh, deconversion actually is not a, a term that is used most commonly. Um, but I prefer that term just because um, terms like apostasy uh, tend to be somewhat pejorative. But hmm. when I use it, it just, for me, when I'm doing this research on deconversion, it refers to um, people who no longer would self-identify with a particular um, religious tradition. So deconverts of the Christian faith would be people um, in my mind, who would no longer um, identify themselves as uh, being a Christian, and and then also um, people who would no longer have certain commitments that we would associate with being a Christian. Yeah, and and so Michael, as Labry said, we've been talking about this over the last couple of days. Uh, we we did the we played some audio from Paul Maxwell. He was the latest guy to come out. Uh, kind of publicly to say I'm, I'm not a Christian anymore. Uh, kind of a two part question. One. It feels like deconversions, at least public ones, are happening more often now. I wonder if you agree with that, or is that just the nature of the culture we live in now? And two, are there certain things that kind of cause people to, quote unquote, deconvert? Are there, are there some similarities that kind of push people towards that? Right. So the second part of your question is actually a really big question. But uh, let me, let's just talk about the first. Um, I, don't, I can't really speak definitively to the frequency Hmm. of uh, deconversions. Um, I, I think given that we are in this age of social media and how we're just highly interconnected um, through through the internet, um, people have opportunities to publicize their stories much more. That's right. Um, yeah, so in that sense, maybe it gives people a platform to talk about um, their stories. And also what has shifted is that, you know, we live in what some people will call a post-Christian society. Which right. means that there is uh, less social pressure for one to identify as a Christian. So uh, there might be for a very long time people who uh, maybe have publicly identified as a Christian, um, but uh, in reality they would no longer be a Christian, right? Uh, but for various reasons, maybe they have not uh, come out to tell people about their stories. Mm-hmm. But there, since there's less social pressure now, um, I think there is an environment which um, people are more. Uh, willing to share these stories. So I don't know about the frequency, uh, but certainly um, we have heard just in, even in the last couple of years, uh, a number of these uh, well-publicized stories. Yeah. Now, what was the second part of your question, Brian? Yeah, are there some commonalities to kind of what push people? Or do you see kind of like when deconversions happen, they're kind of yeah. saying the same thing? Yeah. So um, 
just as with uh, religious conversion, I, I think it, um, it just really depends on the religious traditions that you're you're speaking about. Hmm. Now, uh, in my research, I developed a, a process model of, of deconversion, uh, which just provides a kind of a broad framework for making sense of these stories. So I think there are stages um, that that all these stories have in common, but the particularities of what each of these stages look like, I think it differs. Hmm. Because when you're talking about any sort of religion, it doesn't have to be the Christian religions, each kind of construct their faith in different ways. So even there's not a singular Christianity. There are multiple Christianities. There are different versions of the Christian right, faith. Right, right. So depending on what faith community you're, you're thinking about, I think the process just unfolds a little bit differently. So in my research, I was looking specifically at the evangelical tradition. So I, I could speak more definitively to what that looks like, um, specifically to people um, who previously served as uh, vocational Christian ministers. That was the focus of my research. Um, you know, speaking of that, Michael, and just hearing before you say you were a pastor for a time, Brian and I are both pastors now. Mm-hmm. How can the church do better, right? So for a <laughs> folk, folks who are in the process of deconversion or, or maybe beginning that journey, how can the church do better? Well, I could relay some of the... So part of my research, I... I must have spent at least 75 hours of, of interview time. So wow. I listened wow. to a lot of stories, spent a lot of time um, listening to people's stories. So I, I could convey some of what I was hearing, some of the patterns that I was discerning. Um, and this, again, is among evangelical uh, missionary, former evangelical missionaries and a minister. Okay. Uh, for many of them, uh, this, this, uh, this crisis and then uh, this crisis, which precipitated a quest, a religious questing for um, an alternative, was a, a very solitary one. Hmm. So, uh, especially within like uh, very conservative, traditional um, varieties of evangelicalism, there there tends to be a um, a stigma attached to things like doubt. Mm. Right. So, uh, it. it for many, for many of the uh, people I talked to, um, they were part of communities where um, they found it to be inhospitable places where they can really openly and along with side other people explore um, the crisis and doubts that they were experiencing. Wow. And then added to that, their, their position. I, you guys being a pastor and minister, you probably know like um, being a pastor is often a very uh, lonely Yes. Place to be, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain expectations uh, that your congregation has that, that you just kind of feel pressured to live up to. You know, you right. have it all together. And who do you confide with? You know, <laughs> right? <laughs> if, if, you're, if you're a pastor, you know, right. your congregants, yeah. uh, maybe Definitely not. <laughs> yes. So for various reasons, especially for people that are in positions of leadership, um, this becomes a very solitary journey. Yeah. Um, so for congregants, I'd say that uh, there's just a number of things that I think we need to do better generally um, as evangelical communities. I, I think we shouldn't stigmatize doubt. Um, doubt actually can be a healthy companion in a healthy uh, faith. It has a place um, in faith. It's not the same thing as unbelief. 
Michael, you said something really compelling. You said doubt can be a healthy companion. And I was actually just reading an article you wrote from Christianity Today. I mean, it's been three years ago now, but the title is Doubt is Not Unbelief, Evangelicals and the Stigma of Doubt. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the place that doubt has in our faith journeys? Yeah, so following Oz Guinness, which um, he, he wrote probably the most helpful thing that I read on this subject. Um, Doubt is just a state of suspension between faith and unbelief. So it's not the same thing as unbelief. It, it just means so you're on a fence to something. Um, so within the deconversion process, you know, doubt just becomes um, a form of crisis uh, that precipitates people looking for religious alternatives. Hmm. And so within the evangelical tradition, uh, doubt can take it's not just a, it doesn't necessarily have to just be an intellectual question that people have, but it can also be experiential. So when people um, experience doubt, there it just kind of refers to a sense of dissatisfaction or perceived conflicts that people are experiencing with uh, their present religious understandings and experiences. Wow. And Michael, we're all parents. We talked about that early on. I feel like... Uh, one of the scarier things for Christian mm -hmm. parents is when their kids start to express doubt. That's right. Uh, what have I done? What are they, you know, are they ever going to come back? But, but probably when we stifle our kids doubt at a very natural age to doubt and think and question things, it probably pushes them further away. So what would you say to parents who've got teenagers uh, who are like terrified of their kids not continuing in the faith and having doubt. How would you encourage parents to walk with their with their uh, teenagers or their kids through that? Gosh, Brian, that's such a big and important question. Um, I mean, recently you heard about Abraham Piper as well. That's right. Yes, yeah, that's yep. right. Um, and, and just what how what how, how heart wrenching uh, mm -hmm. that must be for parents. Yeah. Um, that was a very prominent question um, in my mind. I was doing research because I was thinking about my oldest son, mm. uh, Peyton, who. Is a lot like me. Like we're really inquisitive. We have tons of questions. Things have to make sense. Um, I guess a few brief things I would say is like I think about this a lot in, in the way that I, I parent and disciple my kids. Um, I want to foster an environment where they're free. Uh, they feel free to ask questions. Uh, I want it to be a, a place where they can actually seek. I don't want them to just come down and say, well, you got to believe this because I say so or because the Bible teaches, you know, this or this yeah. is what I think the Bible teaches. Yeah. Uh, and then where there are things that where there's disagreement uh, and there's different levels of confidence, you know, I, I convey that to them. So when we talk about the Christian narrative, for example, like I explained to my kids, you know, some Christians believe this, mm -hmm. believe that. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really careful uh, to what I kind of raise up as like non-essentials in good. the Christian faith. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. I'm just sitting here thinking of <laughs> conversations with my own kids. Like, I feel like you need to write a book about this. For us. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Lee, we need this information. So, so, yes, yeah, so it's, it's in the works. And then besides oh. that, there's also the, the experiential aspect of it, right? So uh, I mentioned that doubt and crisis is not just intellectual, but it's also experiential. So mm. like if your home and your church community is just dysfunctional. That is, that is going to raise some um, experiential dissonance in people. Sure. sure. Right. Uh, which uh, precipitates this, this questing that they're going to look for. Like your, your Christianity has to be believable 
It has to be plausible. It has to be beautiful. Hmm. And so I, I think about it all the time. It's like, what version of the Christian faith am I modeling to my kids? Oh, that's is good. it going to lead to a resilient faith or is it going to lead to dissonance? Is it something wow. that they don't want to be a part of? Oh, yep. That's so, so good. Thank you for that. Um, Michael, you have a model, really, going back to this process of deconversion, um, where you really explain how this can happen, even though we've got listeners that are, um, you know, this is audio, not visual, obviously, but can you walk us through that model? Yeah, so my process model, um, it's actually based on Louis Rambo's uh, work on the process model. So I would commend that book to you. Okay. Um, And so I've adapted his model specifically for deconversion, which he doesn't talk much about in his book. Uh, But it just consists of four stages. That's commitment, crisis, quest, and exit. And so with commitment, it's really important because I mentioned earlier that um, like a faith journey, uh, one's faith journey um, has has a beginning. And everyone has uh, constructed their faith a little bit differently. So how this whole process really unfolds uh, depends largely on the this, this sort of commitments, uh, the sort of expectations, the sort of assumptions that they begin with. So they start with a position of commitment and they encounter some sort of crisis, which again could be intellectual, it could be experiential. Uh, but most people uh, don't jump from crisis to quest. There are various reasons why they don't want to try to resolve their doubts. So mm-hmm. in the case of uh, pastors, they're thinking about, well, what if, what's going to happen to my social networks if I lead the faith? Right. If I follow this rabbit trail, where is it going to lead? Uh, what about my livelihood? So just, just a number of things that would uh, cause people to suppress the doubts. And you see this time and time again. Uh, this is not something that just happens overnight. Um, it takes years. In some cases, it takes a decade for this process to unfold. Wow. But at some point, if they overcome the suppression, it leads them to a quest where they're looking to resolve some of the doubts that they're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this quest, again, it unfolds differently. They have different advocates uh, along, along the way. Um, and usually it doesn't lead to an exit. It's kind of a cyclical process where it leads to a new uh, construction of their faith. So hmm. it could be theological, what I call theological migration. It leads to uh, new, new, uh, new beliefs, uh, new commitments, and then it starts back into commitment. And what I find is that this, you know, they go through the cycle a number of times until at some point um, it leads to an exit from the Christian faith. Fascinating. Wow. Uh, Michael, this is just great. With the last minute we have left, and it might not be enough time for this, but you, like you said, you were in pastoral ministry. You're working with students now. You're kind of putting your mind on the church. Are you hopeful for the church? As you look kind of in this next you know, decade, next generation, are you hopeful for the church? And what gives you hope if you are hopeful? Well, what gives me hope is that, it, that God is ultimately in control of all Amen. this. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the gates of hell will now prevail upon the church. That's right. So despite, you know, despite we, when we look around us, there's a lot of bad news. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of things like we, we see narcissism running rampant in our church. Yeah. Uh, just a series of falls of high profile Christian leaders. Uh, just a lot of bad news. But ultimately, I put my trust that it, it's God's church. We mm-hmm. are. Uh, just part of what he is doing and what he's going to bring to uh, to fulfillment. 
So that has to be the foundation for me. I know God is going to bring about uh, one that should be brought about. Um, But in the same, in the same way, I I have, I'm a part of this, you know, that's that whole divine sovereignty and human responsibility mix, right? That we have to Right, right, right. It doesn't excuse us from, from the things that we do. Yeah. Um, And so I'm hopeful in the sense when I, when I see the great students that we have, like, like Aubrey, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) (laughs) god is raising up uh, workers into his harvest field and uh they're they're people they're leaders that he's raising up to do the great work of gospel witness well michael we're so grateful for that hope for for you pointing us in that direction we'll Mm -hmm. have you back on again sometime specifically to talk about aubrey's grades I'm not going to be there that day. (laughs) Again, that's Dr. Michael Lee's assistant professor of ministry and leadership uh, at Wheaton College. Michael, this was great. Yeah, thank you so much, Michael. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Glad to be with you guys. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. I am Brian Fromm, really happy to have you with us today. So I was going through Twitter the other day and found somebody had retweeted a a clip. It's about a two-minute clip of Robin Williams, uh, comedian and actor who, oh, my gosh, I watched a documentary about Robin Williams on our flight to Arizona a month ago. It was heartbreaking. Oh, I bet it was. Really about the medical issues he was going through that mm. ultimately led to him taking his own life. Mm. Uh, it was heartbreaking. It really was. So that guy sad. was going through early onset dementia that was just robbing him of everything. And he knew that it was happening. And it was just so Uh, sad. But uh, uh, one of the things that made it so sad is that Robin Williams, if you know his career, full of life. Uh, just a comedic genius. Yes, brought a uh, lot of joy and laughter to a lot of people. Absolutely. And uh, what I didn't know about Robin Williams is he had a passion uh, to see uh, our culture, to see America deal with the with the crisis of homelessness. Uh, and so he actually, to the point, he used his celebrity to testify before Congress. And that's what we're going to uh, listen to a little bit here. Uh, it's two minutes of Robin Williams and Whoopi Goldberg was there as well. But this particular thing clip is two minutes of Robin Williams testifying before a house committee about homelessness. Let's listen to this. What we've been doing for the last four years is basically putting a bandaid on a a very gaping wound. But this is, this program has incredible possibilities to deal with basically keeping people in their homes. The problem cannot be denied anymore. We cannot be a kinder, blinder nation. I, I do believe this can work in an incredible way from a grassroots level that the money can get to that and prevent, really, truly prevent homelessness. That's where it lies. You can't keep picking people up. You have to stop, stop them from falling. That's what I hope. Thank you. I thank all of you in a bipartisan way. I know it's a little scary when you have a comic in front of you. It's kind of like having a porcupine in a hemophiliac ward, but... <laughs> I... I present just my simple soul and hope that you do continue this in, in a bipartisan way. In the community I grew up in San Francisco, the neighborhood I lived in was turning into Death Valley. And they come out, hand the door, basically going, people taking care from other neighborhoods, coming in, trying to take care of people who can't get out, and the programs won't come to them. They were dying in their homes. Because when you see a family basically living out of their car, it's like grapes of wrath, 
people running around, living out of their cars. The car breaks down, then they live in the car, and then eventually they move out of the car. A family of five living in a Chevette? Nay, I say not. You know, and you're right. We are basically broke. We are a trillion dollars in debt. We don't, don't, we don't owe this money to someone named Vinny. It's the, <laughs> we're here because you have to find ways to get that money and what to do with it. No one's going to come and go, I want the money by tomorrow, I'm going to break your nuclear arms. It's too late. You have a piece. There has been a cutback. They have. They're making a few less stealth bombers. The Emperor's Air Force is diminished. All right, great. There is some money available now. And I try to address it in, using the only weapon I have, comedy. And that's all we do. And this woman addressed it with her heart. And you address it with bills and appropriations. And I hope you, I wish you the best and thank you. And your concern is at that human level. And I hope people wake up. And they are. We ask for your help, and we'll try and help from this end, and we'll meet, and it will be a kinder, gentler nation one day. Thank you. So, Robert Williams, just to hear his voice, guy's hilarious. Yes. Even when testifying about homelessness uh, in front of Congress, uh, what it, what was his line there? It's like bringing a porcupine to a hemophiliacs convention. <laughs> brilliant. Uh, but I thought this was important, uh, Aubrey, because you know what? The problem of homelessness has not gone away since the early 90s. That's actually fact, gotten worse. Most people would say that it has gotten worse. And mm-hmm. so I did think that this clip helps highlight that. But as you listen to Robin Williams uh, testifying about homelessness, just what kind of things stood out to you as you listen to that? Oh, it was so emotional, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I could remember some of the exact lines he said, but I appreciated that he talked about how we we need to actually get to like the root of the crisis. Not he didn't use this language, but not just put a band aid on it. Like let's fix the whole system. And That's I right. think as Christians, especially, we know we are called to this, right? We know this is the heart of Jesus, who would tell us to help be hosts in the most holy, uh, sanctified way and to help the homeless, to help uh, change the system, to meet the needs of those who are in need. And so for me, it was just a reminder, like, wow, Lord, I don't know that I have I have taken this seriously. I'm learning from Robin Williams, right, to, to um, be mindful and get passionate and find out the organizations that are helping the homeless in a way that's actually empowering. Um, we actually have a our children's pastor at Renewal, her daughter was homeless for a time. And so she has deep passion wow. for this issue and for homeless people. And it's really interesting to learn from her perspective as a mom, um, how she goes about empowering her daughter, um, you know, when she was in that season of her life. Yeah. I, I, as I watched this, I thought to myself, homelessness is really easy to disregard. Uh, yeah. You know, it might be because of familiarity. I go to the city, I walk down the street, I see homeless people, right? And you kind of, it always tears at your heart a little bit, but it becomes familiar. And anything that becomes familiar becomes easy to ignore or right. To you kind of become numb to it, yeah. And also, you and I both live out in the suburbs. You're in West Chicago. I'm yeah. in Downers Grove, and the the homelessness of these in the suburbs is very hidden. Well, that's um, what I was thinking, right? Like in a city like Denver, or downtown Chicago, there's homeless people everywhere. We can go, we can go throughout our weeks. That's right. And and not remember that there are homeless people. And there's something sad about that. There really is. Like, especially if you spend time in probably your local library, you'll all of a sudden be like, oh, wait, there are homeless yeah, people all around. Yeah, yeah. And I think the way I wanted to end the show today is just kind of the call on us as individuals, but also the church to mm. go, hey, people shouldn't be homeless. Like, yeah. even if you even if you want to get to the point where you go, oh, you're one of those people who says most people who are homeless, it's their fault. The truth of the matter is. Most people who are homeless have gotten there because of mental illness yes. or because of a job and something that they couldn't control. Yeah. 
it feels like if Jesus were walking the earth today, uh, the homeless would be one of the first places that he would put his attention. I, is that fair to say, do you think? Oh, Brian, I, I mean, even just hearing you say that, I'm like, yes, that is true. And therefore, wow, we have got to do better at this. I mean, I know there are organizations like PADS mm-hmm. uh, that the church can get involved with. Um, I'm sh- I Do you know of other Christian organizations, Brian, that are doing a really good job at caring for the homeless that we can sort of like research and find out more about? I, I mean, this is where I feel guilty. I yeah. don't, and people might be yelling at their radios right now. What about this? Pads is really the only one I know of outside of like colleges, right? Like Wheaton College, you could be part of groups or Moody, I'm sure. Yeah. This yeah. And that. Yeah. I'm sure there's churches doing awesome jobs, and I'm sure there are organizations that are great. But outside readers, of that, really listeners, know. let us know about them so yes. that so that we can do better. Yeah, and I just think that that if. The church has not just an opportunity, but I think an obligation Mm, to kind of rise up and go, you know what? Homelessness isn't okay. And just because, you know, most of us don't have the story that your children's pastor has of saying it was my daughter. Right. uh, Most of us probably out here in the suburbs, especially don't have loved ones who are homeless. That doesn't make it any less of a crisis. Right. uh, And any less of a call on us as Christians. Uh, to love. So I wanted to end the show with that. Robin Williams, because hey, it's just good to hear Robin Williams' voice again. Oh, it is. Uh, but it's just a challenge. It's a challenge of something that I know most of you probably don't want to think about. I don't want to think about, mm. uh, but is an op- is a, a spot the church can and needs to step in. Well, we're glad that you've joined us today. Uh, come back tomorrow. Uh, from four until six as we close out the week. For Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.